The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, cryptocurrencies have been mired in a so-called winter as the Federal Reserve raises interest rates. Bitcoin's down more than 70% from its highs. Yet could there be signs of green shoots emerging in this crypto winter? After all, Bitcoin's low for the year was way back in June, and it's held above that low since. We'll go hunting for green shoots with the CEO of a digital asset fund manager. But first, Vildana, uh, I have to ask, Buffalo does not have a baseball team. No, no baseball team. No, no, no baseball team. But go Bills. Go Bills, fine, whatever. How about the Phils? As a Jersey native, South Jersey native. Yeah. I really hope you're rooting for the Phillies right I now. I definitely am, 100%. You know why? Why? Because I have a teacher friend who lives in Philadelphia, and if they win and there's a city parade, then she gets the day off. Should they give everyone the day yeah. off? Oh, that's pretty... So when the Eagles won uh, the Super Bowl, 2018? Yeah. yeah. Uh, no. 2016. No. Jesus. Wow, we're both 17, horrible. Yes, 2017. Uh, yeah, they all got the day off, and everybody went out. And into they the cli- streets climb and the part. light poles. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. Burned cars. You th- maybe Bloomberg will give us a day off if the Phillies win. It's possible. Could, could you put in a ticket for that? Ask them. Yeah, I'll, I'll put in a ticket right, on the good. terminal. I am worried about how how good the Eagles are. They're uh, incredibly good. They're undefeated. I know. I'm really worried about them. Yeah. 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 You should be. We have a guest waiting for us, by the way. Oh. <laughs> we could talk about this forever, though. But I want to bring in Leah Wald. She's the CEO, a digital asset fund manager of Valkyrie Investments. Mike and Vildana, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you on the pod. You and I have been talking for years, I think, now. And I think one of the first times we spoke, I actually had been looking for an expert who was very knowledgeable about world events. And you actually have a background. You you had world, worked at the World Bank. So maybe just tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into crypto, having had this you know, World Bank experience. Yes, I I did. I started my career working at the World Bank in the Sub-Saharan Africa region for the former VP, Obiazek Wesley, an incredible woman uh, who then became Minister of Education in Nigeria and Resources, uh, among many other things as well as founding Transparency International. So the segues are are actually quite similar. Um, At the time, it was interesting. uh, The pilot programs for M-Pesa were launching in Kenya. Um, and M-Pesa is a microfinance, microloan uh, based on SMS uh, system. So when I learned about Bitcoin a few years later, to be honest, the value proposition made complete sense to me of a permissionless value uh, transfer uh, transfer that's also uh, denominated in uh, fractional shares that, that can be shared over, you know, instantaneous. Now, I don't think that Bitcoin has taken off in the way that I've hoped quite yet in the developing world with some of those use cases. But 
it definitely was starting at the World Bank and seeing those pilot programs be so successful uh, that got me excited about the use cases and kind of the pillars and principles of crypto and digital assets. Well, what do you think is a sort of holding back that development of those use cases in, in uh, developing economies? Um, you know, that's always been the great promise, right, is, is uh, you know, underbanked communities uh, being able to use crypto to sort of, uh, you know, participate in, in some sort of financial system, uh, if not the, the traditional one. What, what do you think is holding it back? I think that's a great question, something I ask myself a lot. I think that it has evolved in certain ways, given uh, the more trend towards believing Bitcoin to be a store of value. I think that the recent advances in countries like El Salvador that we've been following, uh, utilizing Bitcoin as legal tender uh, alongside the United States dollar, has shown that there's definitely promise uh, to sovereign nations for using cryptocurrencies. But to your point, uh, is it solving issues with the remittances corridor, uh, other issues with the unbanked? I'm not sure why it hasn't taken off quite yet. I think that structurally, we haven't been focused as much on those types of use cases. I think the speculative elements of cryptocurrencies have definitely had the limelight, which is maybe why we're on this podcast today. But I think that money has followed Wall Street uh, and cryptocurrencies use again in uh, speculative elements and traditional finance joining rather than as of right now, uh, solving some of those development economics issues. But I think that as more development banks around the world start getting more comfortable with crypto assets, which uh, they have not been, uh, I think that we'll start to hopefully see a little bit more progress on that front. With that said, there have been fantastic technological developments that can ease this, such as the amount of nodes on the Lightning Network being over 77,000 uh, and a lot of other advances that I think could facilitate um, what is needed in developing countries for remittances or for, again, microfinance, microloan systems uh, and whatever platform needs to be used to make those successful. Um, you know, and hopefully we'll see it on the sooner end. I'm going to ask you a somewhat controversial question, which is that, and you and I have spoken about El Salvador adopting Bitcoin as legal tender, and I think there's a couple of other countries around the world that have done so, but they're not places where there's, you know, robust usage of Bitcoin or even, you know, we had in El Salvador the failure of the of the crypto wallets, so they hadn't been working when it first rolled out, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just wondering how great of examples these might be uh, to, to be using when talking about greater adoption of, of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Yeah, I think that's the right question. And a controversial answer is that I think what's been interesting from a GDP perspective is the onus we've now placed on El Salvador and the tourism that then has come to the country, and generally the community and enthusiasm of Bitcoiners around the world to support El Salvador due to the initiatives. So in some ways, you're absolutely right. I don't think that the actual usage of Bitcoin as a means of payment on the everyday for buying a you know Big Mac uh, is really taking off. Although I think that, again, we're very early stages for that to be comfortable. And generally speaking, the divide, as you well know, 
uh, in the Bitcoin world is, is it a store of value? Is it a means of payment? Is it this? Is it that? And I think that's still being figured out. And until that's figured out, I think it's hard to try to pinpoint Bitcoin being a means of payment uh, as its success metric, uh, therefore showing the validity of that argument. But on the other side, just generally from El Salvador gaining attention in a positive way, that's something that the country hasn't you know, had that opportunity for in, in a very long time. So I think that in that front, it's been quite successful. Uh, a lot of tourists are coming, again, a lot of support. Uh, and a lot of infrastructure builds, whether it's, you know, wallets specifically designed for the country, it's definitely taken, I'd say, you know, the, the limelight of the fact that Bitcoin as a means of payment cannot take off unless the rails are in place. So there has been a lot of technology developed specifically for El Salvador as well. And again, you know, it wasn't particularly a country that's been very focused on by the mass public. But now we love talking about El Salvador. I just mentioned it and you called me out on it, which is fantastic. Uh, and I think that that's important as well. Uh, you know, Leah, uh, Valdana and I recently wrote a piece talking about sort of the transition from a very much a retail sort of day trader mentality to crypt, uh, towards crypto to more of an institutional approach. It seems like the the influence of institutions uh, the participation of institutions is is much greater. You shared some findings from some bullet points from a Fidelity survey. I'll just read off a couple of the highlights. Adoption of digital assets among those surveyed uh, institutional investors increased to 42% in the U.S., 67% in Europe. Globally, 81% of all institutional investors believe digital assets should be part of a portfolio. So it definitely seems like institutions are are jumping in with both feet this year, especially, I would think that would be bullish for prices. And yet here we are, you know, with prices down severely this year. I mean, did they cushion the blow of, of this crypto winner or, you know, how are you thinking about sort of the interest of institutions and the effect on levels for, for Bitcoin, Ethereum and everything else? Yeah, absolutely. So those statistics are definitely exciting, definitely bullish long term. And as we very well know in finance, it absolutely depends on your time horizon and institutions have a longer time horizon. They also, as a fiduciary, uh, cannot just jump in with uh, a strategy. My, my, I digress. My former partner used to tell me hope is not a good investment strategy. <laughs> so as much as we you know, may like Bitcoin and we're interested in Bitcoin, if it's a bear market, it's a bear market. We're not buying. Right. And that's the, the way that it should be. So I do think, again, I'm very excited about institutions' interest, family offices as well, uh, across the spectrum, a desire to have a crypto strategy for when the timing is right to actually buy in. We also know that there is a lot of different committees that need to sign off, and there's a lot of other hurdles that institutions have, whether it's risk parameters, among others, and also just generally the vehicle that they need in order to buy it. So I think that those statistics from Fidelity and also a recent KPMG survey and, and many others have been absolutely showing very exciting bullish metrics, uh, but it's not showing up in the market right now. And I think that's also because we have a coupling and correlation to the traditional market. And all of us are very concerned for the most part about what the macro outlook is. So I don't see any institutions investing in such a risk asset at the moment 
So I do see a lot and we hear a lot of institutions that we're speaking to on the sidelines and preparing. So I do think if we consider a longer time horizon, that's exciting indeed. Yeah. So they're there, just maybe not in, in the type of size that would really bolster prices, I guess. That's right. So Leah, can you actually talk more about this? Because we've sort of had Bitcoin, largely Bitcoin and some other cryptocurrencies mired in a very tight trading range. So Bitcoin's been hovering around 20,000 for weeks now. And a lot of people are saying or asking, is Bitcoin boring at the moment? So talk a little bit more about the macro landscape, because a couple of months ago, we, you know, speaking of institutional interest, we had the BlackRock announcement that they were partnering with Coinbase. And I remember even back then, it, it really didn't do anything in terms of being a catalyst upward for prices. So what exactly is going on that's keeping prices very muted recently? Right. The million dollar or multi-million dollar question. <laughs> I, I think you brought up a couple interesting points. Number one, that Bitcoin is boring. And how funny that is, because in the same survey that you just mentioned, Mike, uh, the main obstacle to adoption over 51 percent said was volatility. Right. And that's always been, for the most part, what RAs that we speak to and other money managers have had as their highest concern is volatility and uh, an inability to uh, accurately allocate given that volatility. So now we have Bitcoin being the boring asset in the market. And I think that There's some humor to that as well, but also some important elements to consider as this asset develops. And to your second point, Vildana, I think that the BlackRock Coinbase news was extremely important. You're right that it didn't move the markets yet, but the integration with Aladdin can't be overstated. And I think anyone in traditional finance understands the power of Aladdin and obviously the power of BlackRock. What we've been hearing is that uh, allocators still want to work with uh, sophisticated crypto active managers to manage that product rather than allocate themselves due to, again, those concerns around volatility, lack of uh, understanding around fundamentals, lack of regulatory clarity, and just general uh, discomfort in their own understanding Uh, of how to allocate to this asset class. So I believe that, number one, as institutions get more comfortable with the asset class, they will likely feel more comfortable uh, allocating themselves through that integration. And in the interim, that integrates directly to Coinbase. So you can't work with a active manager who is fluent in allocating to these assets, especially in an active and risk-managed way. So I think that there is still... Uh, a hurdle where it went straight to the finish line when maybe we're not quite there yet. Yeah, Leah, I'd like to talk a little bit about the Bitcoin mining space. Uh, I know one of your firm's offerings is a miners ETF, WGMI, uh, actually really taking it on the chin this year, unfortunately, uh, down 72%, I think, since since February uh, when it was launched. What is the sort of the landscape for miners right now? I mean, clearly when uh, Bitcoin prices are low. Uh, it's not the best of times for them. But how do you see sort of the the environment for miners progressing from here? That's a really great ticker, by the way. WGMI? Yeah. I think I know. Is that, what do you think it stands for? It's we're going to make it? Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
Leah is pumping her fist. Yeah. And then you, you gotta <laughs> I'm do so the proud short, of you. You got to do the inverse version of it. The not going to make it. Not yeah, going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I love seeing not going to make it. You didn't think I knew the hip crypto. I didn't. No, I didn't. I don't blame Plus 100 points for you today. <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't know, Mike, that you were such a Bitcoiner, but this is this. Oh, is yeah. Mike, oh, the Bitcoiner. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as you guys know, sometimes you got to get creative with the tickers. You know, you got to get It's a really creative. good one. You have, you have to be a little playful, especially <laughs> in this industry. And that's a tough question. I am bullish, but there's also a lot of concerning elements, especially with prices at this level. Core Scientific recently warned that it's on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, that's no small deal. Um, they're obviously publicly listed. Argo also just came out with news that they failed to raise the $27 million strategic round that they were in the midst of doing and that there's concerns around what that means. But on the plus side, as we know, bear markets are for builders. So, and there's a lot of money still in the space, especially from overseas money that's you know, re relocating here in the United States. So there's a lot of upside to consolidation, perhaps not from the decentralized ethos of Bitcoin, but from a business and capitalist standpoint and, and hopefully price appreciation of the sector, you know, M&A could reduce redundancies and costs and stronger firms could most definitely bolster their position. Uh, weaker firms could return at least some value to shareholders, which is very meaningful in this environment. And again, you know, all industries go through this during downturns and mining is no different. So hopefully we continue to see these activities and, and we are now, uh, especially in the private equity realm. So I don't think it's going to be uh, seen just yet, but I do think that these are bullish catalysts for long term. And typically, miners do overperform Bitcoin in a bull market. Right now, it's it's quite difficult since it's sometimes the inverse. So there's like a beta to to them as a uh, investment, I guess, to whatever the coins do. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. All right, I'm going to blow your guys' minds with this next one because I'm ready. You know the the Ethereum merge. I've actually heard of that. I, I think I understand That's what it was. Nuts. <laughs> but obviously, <laughs> that was the big the big event this year where Ethereum switched from uh, proof of work. Leah, I'm curious if that plays a role in troubles for for miners. You know, I assume many of these companies are mining Bitcoin, but also uh, have rigs uh, working as Ethereum validators. Um, how does the uh, switch to proof of stake affect a sort of minor validator company? Um, is it less profitable for them? Uh, more profitable? Uh, you know, is there is there much difference for for these companies involved in that space? Yeah, for miners that were mining Ethereum, obviously they needed to switch, and there has been. You know, luckily for the merge, we have known about it for a very long time. So a lot of mining companies prepared for this for, you know, even years. Now, miners are often agnostic as to which coin they're mining if they're able to. 
uh, simply due to market environments and where they can find the most alpha. For the most part, though, I do think that uh, the market reacted to this news previously and that it was priced in and that miners uh, across the industry had, again, prepared for it accordingly since it didn't happen overnight. The merge was very much a countdown for, you know, a couple of years. Uh, but I do think that that's a good question and also something maybe that we don't know quite yet, uh, especially hard to potentially decouple um, the market environment if we're just looking at the price of ETH uh, and Bitcoin and maybe some of the other proof of work uh, coins. Uh, and so maybe we'll see that more in the future. And also as earnings continue to come out for these publicly traded miners and and other companies that will be sharing their financials soon, I think that that's when we're really going to be able to see how that hit their P&L. But right now, I think given the merge so recently happened, we probably don't know the full effects quite yet. So besides the minor ETF, you guys actually have a bunch of ETFs and I have some ETF, some more ETF questions for you. So for one, can you talk about your Bitcoin futures fund, which launched last year? And I remember at the time writing about this because it was huge news in the crypto space. There had been a ton of concern about some of the costs associated with rolling the futures contracts and how potentially that was maybe going to eat away at some of the returns, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, also worries about volatility. So can you maybe reflect back now that it's been a year about the sh how well the structure, the, the fund itself and, and others like it have actually held up and whether or not some of those worries that we had back then sort of have 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 proved to be unfounded. Yeah, absolutely. And it obviously varies across us issuers. I think that there was probably a real silver lining in being smaller and second in that we've only held front month futures. So that makes the roll periods more fluid. You know, again, if you if you look at how our Bitcoin futures ETF has performed, it's had very minimal contango effect. Uh, again, that's really due to the front month futures. And there's been actually a lot of healthy volume um, with momentum and new creates over the past month. And, you know, other metrics, again, of the premium discount spread for ETFs is kind of negligible based on the other trust products in the market. So again, if we try to consider that the Bitcoin futures ETFs as an alternative to uh, GBTC, as an example, or OBTC, uh, there's just a huge uh, discrepancy on the uh, pos positives of the structure of the Bitcoin futures ETF. Um, so I would say that uh, now, a little over a year later, I agree with you that um, that launch day, I was definitely hammered on questions of role and how that would affect. And I think that uh, time has shown that, especially if you're holding front month futures, that hasn't been as scary as the market thought. And then I want to ask you about a spot Bitcoin ETF and what the prospects are for that, because, you know, periodically we just tend to hear uh, about this whenever we hear from Gary Gensler, for instance. And I know there's a huge contingent of believers who, who say, you know, it's around the corner. It's going to get approved. So yeah. what are actually the the um, the prospects? I'm going to predict it? not in my lifetime, maybe it's, year two, year two lifetimes. But I have no comment. <laughs> You don't have a I comment, have no comment on, on my age. Oh, I, yeah. I, I, I give you the softball. I don't right want to age you. I don't want to uh, age you. No age shaming. All no. Right. So, Mike, I shouldn't hold my breath because that's <laughs> that's not going to work then. 
Well, and I wanted to throw a huge kudos to Chairman Gensler, who appropriately tweeted recently about Bitcoin's birthday. And I thought it was a very sweet tweet, actually, acknowledging that uh, Halloween was actually the release of the white paper. So uh, that was very sweet to see. Uh, but Mike, Mike threw a party for Bitcoin's birthday. I wasn't invited, though. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, you, you don't hear many kudos sent Gensler's way from no, the you crypto don't. world. So uh, hopefully he listens and, uh, and hears that one. Yeah. I mean, anyone could be Satoshi. So I don't know if, you know, that was your costume and <laughs> just you presented yourself. I mean, Mike, it, it could be you and we don't know about it. Um, but, uh, you know, Halloween is amazing. It's my favorite holiday. As for the Bitcoin spot ETF, I mean, that's that's always been the question. Um, and I we definitely can't predict uh, what the SEC is going to do and when they approve it. Um, but as an issuer, we're doing our best to try to keep a finger on the pulse. We most definitely still are in the race to uh, see that holy grail of the Bitcoin spot ETF get approved. And obviously, we do agree that it's a more efficient vehicle. Um, that it's the right vehicle. And I definitely think that it will be um, a huge benefit to the market. We've seen in other markets abroad, uh, the Bitcoin futures ETFs performed very well, very comfortably. Um, and, you know, across from Canada to Brazil, as well as the other ETNs in Europe. So, you know, I look forward to the day where uh, we see that approved here in the U.S., but I, I think that you're right, Mike. Maybe not that long, but I, I won't be holding my breath. <laughs> you know, Leah, one thing uh, you sent some notes over to us before the show. One thing really caught my eye is uh, you have a bullet point here that nearly $1 billion worth of Bitcoin was recently moved to cold storage. Now, uh, cold storage, for those who are unfamiliar, and, and correct me if I mess this up, but it's basically you take the Bitcoin uh, off the exchange and you put it on a hard drive uh, that you keep in a filing cabinet. Then you promptly forget the password to the hard drive <laughs> or you throw it out and you have to go dig through a dump to find it. And uh, and, and spend billions trying to dig it out. Yeah, right, right. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. But but. What is it about the notion of moving uh, Bitcoin to cold storage that, that you think is bullish? Is, is it as simple as that? Is that some of this is just going to get lost and, and forgotten? Oh, geez. Well, I, I certainly <laughs> hope not with, with that type of amount. Um, I think that it's bullish. It's also, uh, just as a, a divergent note, I also think it's important to show the importance of Bitcoin being able to move that type of money instantaneously. Yeah. It's just a, an important element if we talk about the Bitcoin fundamentals. And uh, we often talk about price, uh, but it is fun to note the importance of the fundamentals on something like that. But bullish. And the reason that it's bullish is typically when crypto or especially Bitcoin is moved into cold storage, that buyer, that hodler uh, doesn't plan on selling. So if all of that was dumped on the market, I think that we'd be in some trouble indeed. Uh, but again, when we see large movements, and that's called on-chain analysis, looking actually on-chain, uh, moving from uh, cold storage onto exchanges, we get very nervous, concerned <laughs> that they are going to be selling. Yeah. Uh, but moving from exchanges into cold storage means that it's going in the safe and hopefully they don't plan on selling it and they're they're holding it for the long term, which is something that 
we like to see and is is helpful for keeping the health of the Bitcoin market for longevity. And, and what do you suppose inspires that movement to cold storage? Now, I can't help but wonder if some of these bankruptcies we've seen this year have people worried about, you know, where their their crypto is held. Is, is that part of it? Too, do you think? Yes, actually, I think that I think that that is uh, the short note on the price and investment thesis. There is is simply that. Uh, potentially, you know, a lot of these holders believe that we're at a bottom um, or near there too, uh, especially if their horizon is much longer. Um, so they're comfortable moving into storage now uh, and, you know, holding it at this price and feeling very comfortable. As to your very Bitcoiner comment, and I'm very impressed today, uh, we <laughs> in the industry say, uh, not your keys, not your coins. And I think that's absolutely right. There's a uh, widespread analogy, uh, actually an adage there, um, that if you keep it on an exchange, it's vulnerable and it's not your Bitcoin. And I think that there's nothing more pressing than actually and important than what you're saying here, given the contagion that we've seen in the market that just devastated crypto this year across the lending platforms, especially. Um, so I think that that's an important takeaway uh, for anyone that does hold crypto is that not only keeping it on a third party platform exposes you to the devastation of their policies and what they are doing uh, behind the scenes. Uh, and therefore, you can't always just get your Bitcoin back. Uh, but again, really taking control of your money and ensuring that you are holding it and therefore you know exactly where it is. So not your keys, uh, meaning private keys in order to um, hold your Bitcoin, not your coins. So I think that that's very, very important, especially, again, in light of everything that's just devastated the market from the contagion of uh, the hedge funds, the lending platforms, and most of the funds that got blown up. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. And just to keep us going with the theme of, you know, crypto specific terms or, or memes even, one of my favorites is October, which is just people hoping that the month of October is a very good month for crypto prices. And we had somewhat of a, an October uh, over, the, over the past month. So can you maybe just talk about some of those other green shoots? Like what else is out there that maybe is making you a bit more positive about things? Yeah. I think, again, bringing it back to the fidelity points that you spoke about earlier, Mike, I think that those are positive elements that we definitely need to take note of. Uh, there's other institutions that have been coming out with very powerful news. Uh, Bank of New York announcing their Bitcoin custody. Uh, NASDAQ did as well. Uh, other very large players such as Apollo, uh, Franklin Templeton with SMAs across the spectrum. 
So I do think, again, that a lot of very smart traders are seeing this as a relative bottom, but as a buy opportunity. And again, I think that as much as institutions continue to come out with positive news, release reports such as what you mentioned, which has news about already allocating to these digital assets, uh, the comment at hand that we were speaking about is, you know, how much are they allocating uh, and is it a sizable portion of their portfolio? But knowing that they are allocating already uh, is important to note. And again, we've been speaking more US centric, but globally, it's it's really a different environment. Uh, I used to live in Singapore for a few years. And in Singapore, it's a different conversation to be speaking about Bitcoin and crypto and your allocation strategies. Uh, and across Asia, you just see different dynamics. Uh, South Korea always being a hub, Japan being very regulatory forward um, throughout uh, the past few years. Uh, so again, it's not just a U.S. phenomenon and the rest of the world has been allocating. And I think that in keeping in mind that this is a global phenomenon, an asset class that's uh, traded worldwide and those move the markets as well, I think that there is bullish news to be had. I don't know if we can um, truly call it an up. October, uh, as having moved the markets, given where we're sitting again right now. But definitely there's there's been bullish news that has come out over the past month. Right. And obviously, we're talking about a lot of positives that you and others within the industry have been sort of pointing to or, or looking at recently. But again, we have to remember what actually is happening bigger picture with the crypto space. And some of the most heart-wrenching headlines have been about a lot of the layoffs or reshufflings or, you know, within uh, just a huge number of crypto companies. I know Bloomberg News just this week reported about Galaxy considering some layoffs and there have just been so many. I've been writing about Genesis and some of the moves that people have been making away from that company. So maybe you you can talk about your view on what's going on in terms of seeing some of the CEOs especially leaving, and then tell us about what's happening with Valkyrie specifically and how some of these changes and trends have been impacting you guys. Yeah, I think it's been a hard winter. And I think that a lot of uh, us firms in especially crypto asset management understand that the winter could be here for much longer, maybe 18 months, even plus. Um, So from even just a dispassionate business decision, Um, as awful as that sounds, sometimes that's the decisions you need to make as the CEO in the end of the day in order to cut costs as much as needs be based on uh, what your P&L is looking like in this type of environment. There has been necessities for many firms across the industry to conduct layoffs and uh, other metrics and measures such as strategic rounds. Again, right now, you're seeing that across across the industry, blockchain.com came out with news um, that they're also raising another strategic round. Um, so I think that, you know, uh, yeah, a lot of the crypto asset managers, all intents and purposes, I'd see a lot of us as startups. Uh, we are not BlackRock as much as we hope to be one day. And in the interim, we are still trying our best to still have a seat at the table. But that does mean that we are more prone to these types of market volatility than a larger legacy firm in New York City uh, would be in something like this. So I think the best that we can do and what we all need to be thinking about, again, as mentioned previously, bear markets are for builders. 
So hunkering down on what's working and what your vision is for the future is what's important. So at Valkyrie, it's been very important to the firm to be building infrastructure tools and technology this year. And that's something that we're focusing on during this market as well, is ensuring that our funds are running to the highest quality possible, making it through the bear market, taking care of our investors and holding their hands when it gets a little scary and building the infrastructure tools to make sure that as this market thaws, we are in the most powerful position and digitally enhanced, if you will, um, to really take advantage of the uptick and and be there as a hopefully a powerhouse. But I, I would say that, you know, this market definitely hits us more than the legacy players. Uh, you know, Lee, you mentioned uh, Bitcoin celebrating its birthday. I think throughout the entire lifespan of Bitcoin, uh, the notion of uh, regulation has just been hanging over the whole space like this, you know, storm cloud. Uh, and, it, you know, it really seems like it's only been sprinkling the storm cloud. It hasn't really been a, a deluge yet of, uh, you know, of regulations. Um, but obviously, we have a midterm election coming up. So is there any risk there, either positive or negative risk uh, in your mind as, as far as how these midterms shake up? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. I think that it does very much depend on what we see in the midterm elections. And in regards to getting, again, if we're looking at that Bitcoin spot ETF approval, I think that many firms across the board are looking for greater regulatory uh, understanding and guidelines from all the regulators uh, on how that affects them. I think that a lot of people were uh, interested in what came out with FASB recently uh, and generally are just looking to Washington, D.C. to uh, see how that affects their firm and if it makes them comfortable enough to be able to buy. Um, so I think, as mentioned, we are likely a far ways off, uh, at least a couple of years from that spot Bitcoin ETF. Um, but, yeah, I, we're, we're watching the midterms very closely. Uh, we think that if Democrats retain majority, we expect rules and regulations to come hopefully within the next year. Uh, but we also expect that if Republicans take the majority in one or more houses of Congress, we uh, expect that it may take longer. So we're definitely watching that very closely. Is, is it sort of better for the industry to just get those, you know, rip the Band-Aid off with those regulations and get them in place quicker? Absolutely. And actually, uh, Vildana, I loved your piece about that recently. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I would love your thoughts a little bit more since I think that your piece recently really nailed that on the head that it seems as if the industry just uh, celebrates uh, having that type of clarity so that they'll have more comfort buying. Yeah, I think you're talking about the we, we did a Markets Live survey saying that uh, or asking people, would you be more interested in crypto if there were more regulations in place? And the majority of respondents had said yes, I think. So there there was this really great quote where somebody told me, the more they can get crypto out of the Wild West and into, into traditional investing, the better off it's going to be. So I think a lot of people, at least they say that they'd be more interested in the space if there were greater regulations in place. Well, I think that's a good segue for us yes. to, to our own Wild West of crazy things in markets. But mine isn't even markets related, but it's numbers related. So yes. I'm just going to cheat. Yeah. I've been cheating a lot recently, but this is so hilarious. I had to go with it. Okay. All right, go, go ahead. I really hope you haven't seen this. A man in China won 
A thirty million dollar lottery jackpot. Thirty million dollar lottery. That's okay. Uh, that's yeah. it. I'm just kidding. Yeah. I, and I, <laughs> this is this is the kicker. He's keeping it a secret from his wife and child because he's <laughs> oh, no. he's worried that the winnings might make them lazy. So he went to the lottery office to claim his prize. Obviously, the big check. And he wore, he wore this hilarious bright yellow, bright yellow costume, had big like googly eyes. So his face and body were totally covered so that his wife and child cannot recognize yeah. him. I'm sure that's the reason why he's hiding that $30 million from his wife. Sure, sure. Guy. Why? <laughs> I think there's other reasons to hide $30 million from your wife, you know. Like what? I don't. I, I don't know. If my wife listens to this podcast, I, I might be tipping. Are my you hiding thirty this. million dollars? Oh. oh, is this person you? Okay, so he said I didn't tell my wife and child for fear that they would be too complacent and would not work or work hard in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. All right, all right. I didn't know that was a possibility. I, it, We've done lottery stuff before. Yeah. 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 Good. Good stuff. All right. How about you, Leah? You see anything crazy uh, recently in markets? Okay, so this this was tough, uh, but I was told this recently, and I thought that it was pretty interesting. It's actually quite sad, but you guys also talked about the Phillies, I believe. So it's a Phillies factoid. So apparently, uh, if you look at the years when Philadelphia teams won the World Series, uh, they were all in or near periods of economic or stock market weakness, and we are obviously in one now. So bad omens indeed. But that was something new that I learned recently. Yeah. So scary. Philadelphia and the the Athletics, the predecessor, I believe. Yes. Well, 2008, that was the last time. Look, it's a small price to pay, all right? A a minor recession, financial crisis. You know, if that's what it takes for the Phillies to win, I'm okay with it. I saw this on Twitter and I closed it out real fast. (laughs) I really did. I was like, oh, no. (laughs) I think there are some who will claim that the A's won a few series that did not precipitate a financial crisis. So, uh but, I mean, it's... Oh, I was going to say, this has it, like a 100% track record. It is what it is. If a global financial crisis is, is what it takes... I didn't I think say most it. of Philly would be okay with that. <laughs> I didn't say it. I think the A's actually did win in 1929 as well. Yeah. I mean, this, oh is, this is just bad. I know. I know. It's not good. It's oh, not my good. gosh. We'll get All a right. cheesesteak and call it a day, I guess. <laughs> Cry into the cheesesteak. <laughs> and a pretzel for me. <laughs> Oof. Now, Leah, I know in your world, uh, heavy crypto traders like to refer to themselves as degens or, or degenerates. But as degen as they get, I, they don't really compare to the original degens of the gambling world. So, so my crazy thing relates to the gambling markets. So did mine, lottery. Right. Okay, fine, fine. All right. Have you heard of this guy, Mattress Mac, in Houston, in Texas? Yes, yes. He's... Yeah. He's a furniture, he owns this furniture, chain of furniture stores, and he has placed a bet on the Houston Astros to win the World Series to beat my Philadelphia Phillies. So clearly a degenerate right there with that, with that pick, those cheaters in Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, Big cheaters. I, I'm just kidding. Mattress <laughs> Max seems like a very nice guy. Uh, very fine. Uh, I was going to lean into individual. this with you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want Mattress Mac coming after me. Anyway, he's placed, if he wins this bet, they said it will be the biggest legal gambling winning of all time. So, Leah, I regret to inform you, you are a contestant on our game show, The Price is Precise. 
And so is Valdana, who I think may have already read the story. This story is courtesy of Forbes, by the way. I oh, didn't no. read but this. But you, you just know Mattress Mac from his mattress? Uh, because he placed some bet like six months ago on He's, something and he won big. He, 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 he what played, was it? He, he places big bets, yeah, left and right. I think he did a Super Bowl bet that. Uh, oh, maybe it was Super but Bowl. But I'll, yeah. I'll explain his strategy. It's a brilliant strategy when, when you find out. But what do you, uh, Valdana, price is precise. What do you think? Uh, the biggest legal gambling win will be if this guy wins, which like, he's not. What, what which the he's not going, is going to, to be? By the way. What yeah. the payout? The no, payout, the yeah. Phillies are going to win. Okay, I'm going to go with 1.8 million. 1.8 million. Okay, Leah, what do you think the payout will be on the world's biggest legal recorded uh, sports gambling bet? Well, I, I want to redo mine. I want to go <laughs> higher. I'm going to go with 4.3 million. All right, I'm I'm keeping a poker face here, uh, Leah. What's what's your uh, entry on the prices precise for the biggest ever legal gambling payout? I believe legal sports bank gambling payout. I want to go even higher. <laughs> no, no, you get you already <laughs> amended it once. I'm going over, so I'll go uh, four point eight. I take I take above Vildana. Yeah, you'll take four point nine, four point eight, and one dollar. I was going to redo it to five point five, but fine. Let's stick with whatever I had. Seventy-five million dollars. Yes. <laughs> so I, I kind of win that. You, you win. win. Yeah. You, you win. win. You played it smart. That's the way you play it. Yeah. You we were far off. Oh god. <laughs> the goal's not to get it on the nose. It's just to beat Vildana. In, yeah. In <laughs> he bet ten million on the Astros at average odds of seven and a half odds, but. The guy's kind of a genius because here's his strategy. He told his customers, if you spend $3,000 or more on a mattress, which first of all, I did not even know mattresses sold for $3,000. Hello. Yes. Today. Uh, I need to, today's dollars. I need to sleep in one of those mattresses. I, I, I don't think I'll ever wake up. If, if the customer spends 3000 or more on a mattress and the Astros win, they get the mattress for free, right? So what happens is, all these people went and bought expensive mattresses. All these Astro That's so fans. Smart. He, he sold something like seventy-three million worth of mattresses, and then he had to shut it down because he he placed a ten million dollar bet. So, if the Astros win, he wins seventy-five million, and his customers get seventy-three million in free mattresses. If and the Astros still, lose, still makes money. If the Astros lose, he has sold all these mattresses. Wow. Pretty brilliant uh, strategy there, uh, despite the fact that the Astros are going to lose. Hopefully, they will lose by the time this podcast comes out on Friday. I hope so. It's a brilliant strategy, though, Leah. I got to admit, I you know, you, it's kind of no smart. downside. Yeah. yeah, very smart. Okay, well, that's that's it for our show. Leah Wald, CEO at Digital Asset Fund Manager of All Korea Investments. Thank you so much for joining us. It was so fun to have you on. Thank you so much for letting me join today. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Leah. Thank you, Leah. That's it for our show. And don't forget to tune into Bloomberg Crypto, a daily Bloomberg iHeart podcast. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow Mike at Reganonymous. I'm at Voldana Hyrick. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.
the countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.